Hi, my name's Cressida Cowell, and I am the author of the How to Train Your Dragon books and the illustrator. And you are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. Well, we have one of those new talking machines. Now that is something. It plays music right here in our home. Progress is something we can't take for granted. Progress takes a lot of people wanting it and willing to work for it. You are listening to the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. This week on the show... If there was anything that I wish I could change about myself as a writer, it would be that I fight with my characters a lot and I should know better. So when I let my characters go without judgment and criticism and everything else that goes with that, it always is a better story. But I want to control things. And so when I try to control the characters, it never, I waste time. It never ends well. Here are your hosts, Jamie Green and Sherry Sondheimer. Welcome to another episode of the Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com. Find us social most places at thegbbpodcast. You can download us from pretty much anywhere that you get podcasts. I am your host, Jamie Green. You can find me at The Roarbots pretty much everywhere. And... Shiri, I'm back because I read fast. Our, our speed reader is here, so if we have an author, you can pretty much guess who our co-host <laughs> is going to be. <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Good. Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you as well. Thank you. So in keeping with my one of my resolutions, uh, at least for the podcast, is to keep these intros short and sweet and to get to the goods as quickly as possible. Let's dive in. No chit-chat. Uh, this week, we talked to J.C. Cervantes, Jennifer Cervantes. Um, Why don't you tell the good people who she is, what she's written, and why we talk to her? Um, Well, I was I was very excited to talk to Jen um, because she is um, one of the authors that was selected to write um, a book. Well, she thought it was going to be a book. It turns out it is going to be a series uh, for the Rick Riordan Presents imprint. Um, For those of you who don't know Rick Riordan, and I, I don't know who that could possibly be at this point. Um, (laughs) he is the author of the Percy Jackson series, the Magnus Chase series. Um, there's a Roman series. My phone just lit up because I said series and it thought it's, I said Siri. Um, the Kane Chronicles, um, really good books, um, based on various mythologies, but, and he is going to continue to write, but he got to a point where he said, um, you know, why am I a white dude uh, going to write these mythologies that are not part of my culture? So, so um, I'm sorry to interrupt. So the Percy Jackson books, my kids just discovered them. My daughter um, is nine. She really just discovered them. And now my son, uh, through her, found them and they are obsessed So they come home with all kinds of mythology books now. But the Percy Jackson books are really based on ancient Greek mythology. So when when most people hear mythology, they they think Zeus, Athena, Apollo, Poseidon, that kind of thing. And that's what those books are based on. So does he write, are any of the other series, of which I am kind of unfamiliar, are Mm -hmm. any of those based on other mythologies other than ancient Greece? Yes, sorry. So uh, there's a series that's based on Roman mythology. The King Chronicles are Egyptian mythology. Um, there's another Greek series, basically 
uh, Zeus gets pissed off at Apollo and tosses him off Olympus. So he's living as a human. They're hilarious. Um, and the Magnus Chase series is Norse mythology. Um, but basically, except for the King Chronicles, they're all European. Um, so in the Rick Riordan Presents imprint, um, we've gotten so far um, Hindu mythology, the Arusha series by Roshani Chosky. Um, uh, Jen wrote, is writing uh, a Maya mythology series. The first one was the Storm Runner. I think the second one, which is coming out later this year, I want to say it's called the Fire Starter or the Fire Bringer. Sorry, Jen. Um, <laughs> Yunha Lee, who wrote um, Dragon Pearl. Um, some of you may know the his uh, his adult series, which is the Nine Fox Gambit and the two books that came after that. Um, they just announced a series that's going to be based on Mesopotamian mythology. But Dragon Pearl Yunha Lee's is based on Korean mythology. Korean mythology. I'm sorry. Yes. Um, and we, we interviewed him. It's up on the Roarbots website. Um, uh, so this is a, this is a big deal. There aren't a ton of middle grade. Some are middle grade and some are more YA for this imprint, but there aren't a ton of either that are based on mythologies that are not European. So this is a big deal. And it's a big deal because Rick Riordan realized that, you know, I have this platform, I have this immense readership who will basically read anything that I write, and I am going to give that platform over to the people who represent these cultures and, and you know, personally and intimately to write about, you know, to create fiction, obviously, but based on the mythologies of other cultures, non-European cultures written by people who identify with those cultures or are from those cultures. Um, and he just puts his name on it to, to sort of give it the credibility among his readership and to give it a little bit wider boost than it might normally have. Which, take note, <laughs> take notes, white dudes with a platform is what you should be doing. Um, which is not to say that he has not embraced a lot of really important issues himself. He's dealt with um, teen homelessness. He's dealt with a lot of LGBT issues. Um, he's has non-binary characters in his books. Um, however, in terms of these other mythologies, he has cut, he has said, you know, he says on the webpage for this imprint, these are not my stories, but they need to be told. And so I'm having people tell them who should be telling them. It's refreshing that he recognizes that they're not his stories to tell and to find the people who can rather than just saying, well, I'll just go do the research and I'll write it myself because I'm an A-list celebrity author and I, of course, can do that, which he could have done and nobody would have questioned it. You know, his publisher would have published it probably. Um, but he is using his powers for good, which is which is a nice change of pace. And like you said, it is something that I think more A-list celebrity authors with a platform and a voice should consider doing. And this is not a tiny indie publisher. This is this is Disney Hyperion. This is a big publisher with a big reach. They have reach. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, we're going to stop talking in keeping with my resolution, and we're just going to get right into it. Um, Jen Cervantes, it was a good conversation. We talk all about the book, and we talk about uh, Maya mythology. One thing I forgot to mention, I'm going to say real fast, is that when we talked to her, we were on Skype so we could see her room, and I wa she had these... 
um, statues and pieces of art behind her, and I really wanted to ask what they were because they were gorgeous. But um, that's neither here nor there. I just wanted to mention that. So if you're listening, Jen, I like your I like your decorating style. Yeah, your house is really cool, Jen. <laughs> <laughs> that's not creepy. Um, thank you guys for coming back week after week, hitting subscribe and listening. And we are, like I said, going through. We're starting off 2019 strong. We have so many good conversations in the can coming up over the next couple of months. We've got artists, authors. Um, uh, musicians, all kinds of great people, great conversations. And we've got a couple really big names that you are going to recognize and probably get excited about. So if you don't subscribe, hit subscribe. Find us wherever you find uh, podcasts. You can find me at The Roarbots. You can find the show at The GBB Podcast. You can find Shiri at... At SW Sondheimer on Twitter and at irate underscore Corvus on Instagram. And until next week, guys, thanks so much. Take care. Um, I guess we'll start off where you've probably answered this a billion times, but how did you first become involved with the Rick Riordan Presents project? Well, so the Rick Riordan Presents imprint launched in 2018. And so a call, a proposal call went out in 2017, I believe. No, wait, no, 2016. I I apologize. So Mm -hmm. in the fall of 2016, I received a um, an email from my agent introducing the imprint and asking because she knows the types of books that I write and asking if I had something in the vault or that I was working on that I would like to be considered. And so I happened to have something that I had been working on that had just really been more of an ideas folder that I put away. And I got it out. I polished it up. I wrote three chapters. I wrote the synopsis as required. We sent it in and we got a call. So that's, that's how it happened. That seems pretty easy in retrospect. (laughs) Yeah. In hindsight, it was super easy. (laughs) 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 Um, What was the directive that you got for the project? Because you came in, I mean, pretty much on the ground floor. Was, Was there a mandate for how the different books would be connected, if at all connected? Like, what were you told? No. So there was a lot of autonomy and freedom that I really appreciated. So I work with Stephanie Lurie, who is the editor on all of the projects, and she also edits Rick Riordan's work as well. And, um, you know, it was very open and, and they really let you run with the project. So I wasn't given any directives at mm-hmm. all. It wasn't until I turned in the final manuscript that then we started the editorial process. And even that I wouldn't call um, having any directives more than edit comments and suggestions the the typical stuff that you get with any book right it's i mean i just find it interesting that with the few what are there i think there are four five four books out now or no three i don't know not many (laughs) there's three out (laughs) one coming and then i believe your second one has been announced right yes yes edit yeah, The Firekeeper is the sequel to The Stormrunner, and that comes out in September of 2019. So that is what I find interesting, because you and Roshani Chokshi are writing a series, but Yunha Lee wrote a standalone. So there was no expectation of, of writing a book that was a series. There was no assumption that you would just write be one and done. There was nothing like that. No, so those conversations really didn't take place. I mean, I was really able to kind of delve into the creative space, which I appreciated because I think sometimes when you get really far ahead of yourself, it can limit what you're doing on the current book. And so each of us probably had very different um, uh, 
contracts in that my stormrunner was purchased as a standalone okay. um, and the firekeeper was another and then so mine wasn't sold as a series i think roshni's was sold as a complete series mm-hmm. um not sure about that and so they're all different just depending on what the author's vision was um what the vision of the imprint and the editor and rick and that kind of thing so when i wrote the stormrunner i didn't know until i got about halfway through the book that, oh, wow, you know, th- there's no way that this is going to be over with. Because it already stands at, I think, 448 pages. So yeah. the way that it ended, I think we were all pretty clear it was going to have at least a sequel. At least a sequel. Yeah. <laughs> Tantalizing. <laughs> um, sure, I don't want to step on your toes because I know you've got a bunch of questions here too. But so the these books in this imprint are intended to explore, I guess, I guess they're extended to explore the, the mythologies of the world beyond the, I guess, stereotypical Greek myths that Rick explores in his books, like and in, in, in sort of expand the world of mythology to go to all other cultures and capitalize on the, the um, popularity of Rick's books and um, in, in, in what he's created there. But I'm just, what, I guess from your perspective, like what were the biggest challenges that you had to face with bringing what might be an unfamiliar culture and mythology to the readers that maybe Rick didn't have to deal with with the with the Greek gods that everybody already knew about or thought we besides, knew about? Besides, besides teaching parents who are reading them out loud how to pronounce. Oh yeah. Things. <laughs> <laughs> I had to. I'm going to admit that I. I had to have Google. I'm pretty good, but I had to have Google read a couple of the names to me. <laughs> no, absolutely, and and especially at, at, for a native English speaker, when we see something that starts with the letter X, our brain just goes haywire, right? Yeah, we don't right. know what to do. With that. Um, so you know, there definitely were challenges. It's really interesting. So I grew up with a lot of these stories, and. I never really delved into any kind of research. I just enjoyed them. And I enjoyed this whole idea of this Maya pantheon. And so when I sat down to write the Stormrunner, I did a lot of research. I, I read at least 11 different texts. Um, I read the Popol Vuh. I watched documentaries. I worked with a couple of Mayanists. And here's what's really interesting. I think my greatest challenge was so much of what we have today in terms of textbooks or other books are very Anglicized or Americanized. And so it, it, it the lens is very different. And because this culture, this civilization was colonized by the Spanish, all the records were destroyed. Mm. And so we're working with very little in terms of recreating these myths and stories. And I have no doubt that many have been lost forever. And, and so it's, um, I, I think more than anything, that was the greatest challenge because I also wanted to bring this to life in a very contemporary way and also have some artistic license and some fun with some of these gods and goddesses and stories and yet balance that with what we have in terms of historical records and that type of thing. Sure. Sure. Was there a source that you found particularly useful that you would recommend to people who want to learn more? So one of the texts that I really enjoyed, um, maybe because it had a lot of pictures, I don't know, <laughs> <laughs> but 
Um, but it, the reason I say that is is partially because the pictures were so fascinating for me. So they could have been something from an archaeological dig, for example, or they could have been an artist's rendition of the God of Death. And so they really got my mind going in terms of creativity. So that's why I really liked it. And I think it's called, um, I can go grab the book, but um, it's called um, The Aztec and Maya Gods, I think is just, ba- and it's a book that's about this bit, this big, um, which doesn't help anybody. <laughs> but we're on a Skype, so I pretty, can think it Pretty big is what she's doing right now. <laughs> Large text. And um, I really enjoyed that book. I did pull a lot from the Popol Vuh as well. Um, but I, I think that I, more than anything, just kind of let everything resonate with me, kind of percolate, and let my imagination kind of go from there. Um, your first book which was Tortilla Sun, mm-hmm. um, which came out in 2010? Yes. Okay. It was a middle grade novel um, about a girl who's dealing with a lot of real life issues, but also in spending a summer at her grandmother's house, sort of discovers magic for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, did you feel like writing that book sort of prepared you for when it was time to write Storm Runner? Gosh, that's such a great question. I think that everything that we write prepares us for something. And so oftentimes I will tell writers, you know, because this is such a tough business and and there's so much rejection that you have to get used to. And so often we put manuscripts away that are never going to be published or that maybe aren't published for 10 years that really no words are wasted. And, and so I would say, yes, um, that that definitely prepared me, but so did so many other manuscripts or poems or, you know, little stories that I wrote. I mean, those all were in preparation as well. And I think more than anything, learning to outline was probably the greatest gift that I've given myself because I was what's called a pantser. And so I would just start and write and just see where the story took me. And so often I found myself pegged into this corner where I didn't know how to get out. And it was a very frustrating exercise for me as a writer. And so I had to relearn how to write. And it was really hard for me and very painful because it was not my natural process. And if I had not learned that skill set the year before, I could not have written the Storm Runner in four months, which is how much time I had to complete it. So I think everything kind of happened serendipitously. You wrote that book in four months? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's <laughs> amazing. I did the research and the book in four months. Yeah, there was not a lot of sleep or food. Or <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> um, wait, 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 What is that? I mean, when if, if you're used to writing sort of at your own pace or, you know, if, if you're – if you're still early in your career, maybe you don't know the, like, the, the, the rigors of a publishing calendar. And so you just sort of like you spend time massaging words and sentences and making it perfect. What does it feel like to suddenly have be like, oh, I've got two months to get this done. And it's got to go to editorial. Like, what does that do to your brain when you like <laughs> when, when you try to sit down and write? So maybe I am just a glutton for punishment, but I <laughs> love lines. I do. I, I really do. Because I can linger in the beauty of composing everything and get lost in that and not just tell the story. And so it really forces me to kind of pull back sometimes and say, Jen, just tell the story, tell the story, tell the story, tell the story. And so I 
like deadlines. I like knowing that this book is due by this date. This is how many pages I have to write per day. I work in page count. I know a lot of authors work in word count. Um, and so it, it works really, really well for the way my brain processes. Do you, do you prefer to work that way? I mean, even if it's a really tight deadline rather than just having an open-ended thing where you could just like, ah, I can get this done whenever. I think that I, you know, I mean, so for the firekeeper, I got five months. So that was like a real luxury. (laughs) Um, you know, sure. I I think in a, in a perfect world, I would like six to eight months, Mm -hmm. um, to research and write a novel, but I, you know what, I feel so privileged and so blessed to work in this industry that I just stick my nose to the grindstone and I get done what I need to get done. And it's, you know, you kind of stand back and say, okay, it's time to be a pro and do what you need to do. And however many hours you have to work in a day and whatever sacrifices you need to make, I mean, you signed the contract, right? So you have to deliver what you promised. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Sherry, I stepped on your question. No, 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 it's okay, because now I'm thinking about it. And the the two short stories that I've had selected to be published. Congratulations. Thank you. Have both been ones where I was like, oh, shit, that's due when? And just like written it instead of sitting there and messing around (laughs) with it and flipping words and deciding where the comma goes. You're just like, oh, crap, that needs to be done. And it's done. And then you worry about it. (laughs) Exactly right. And I think as artists, right, as creative minds and thinkers, sure, we want to luxuriate in the art itself. And, you know, forget the commercial side of it, right? But it really does. It forces you to get done what you need to get done. Because, yeah, I could sit there all day and write scene after scene. I could describe the mountains to you in three chapters, right? (laughs) (laughs) Readers don't want to read that. So (laughs) it does force you. Um, Okay, so what was I going to ask? Oh, yes, okay. So Zane's character, are there any specific myths that you based his character on? My kids were really curious about that. No. And so here's what's interesting about Zane. Zane came to me with this disability. So I did not set out to write. And I remember I was so resistant to it at first. And oftentimes I, if if there was anything that I wish I could change about myself as a writer, it would be that I fight with my characters a lot and I should know better. So when I let my characters go without judgment and criticism and everything else that goes with that, it always is a better story, but I want to control things. And so when I try to control the characters, it never, I waste time. It never ends well. And so Zane came to me that way. And when I first started writing Stormrunner, I didn't even know who his father was going to be. Um, it, it really was just kind of this gift from heaven that his father just happened to have this nickname and it blended with his physical disability. So I did not base him on any particular um, story or myth, no. How about Brooks? No, no. I just knew I wanted her to be super cool and strong and yet sensitive, you know, underneath it all. And the idea of her being a shapeshifter was really intriguing to me because the way she came to me was kind of sassy. And it made sense that she would have this ability and yet have her own weaknesses around that, right? And her own insecurities um, that she wasn't just this all powerful source either. Did you feel like it was important to have a male lead and a female lead so that they could sort of have that interplay or did that just happen as well? 
I love male female interplay. Um, I, it's funny because I have one of my daughters reads for me. She's very imaginative and she does some beta reading and, and she will often say, mom, you always nail the male voice. Like you take so long to get the female voice down. And so I don't know why, but I tend to write boy characters. Um, even, even though Tortilla Sun was a female character, some of the manuscripts I wrote after that were all male driven. Um, and sometimes I think some of my females even have some of those characteristics, what we stereotypically, quote unquote, would describe as um, a more masculine trait. So I, I like that interplay. I like that duality. You've said before that um, you really like underdog stories. What, what is it, do you think, that is so appealing about those types of stories and those types of characters? Life's hard. <laughs> I think life, I think this journey through life is really hard. And, and I, I think about when I was young. So I love, 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 love Rocky. Everyone who knows me knows that I'm obsessed with the Rocky movies. And when I'm having a bad day, I come home and I watch a Rocky movie. You know, there's something about this idea that we can be something more, that we can be something bigger, that we can, you know, that we can achieve something beyond our circumstances. And, and there's this idea that, there's all these external forces that are telling us that we can't, right? Or you're not strong enough, or you're not good enough, or you're not pretty enough, or you're not smart enough. And and those messages, we internalize so much of that as young kids, right? And then we take that with us into adulthood. And so this idea that we can reach beyond that, and we can say no to those voices and no to those naysayers, and that we can achieve something really amazing whether it's, you know, creating a beautiful painting or getting the job of your dreams or being a writer or an athlete, you know, whatever it is that, that lights your fire is, is just really appealing to me because I feel like life is short. And if we're not going to make this journey miraculous and amazing and stretch as far as we can, then I just, I don't know. I don't know what the journey's for. And, you know, my, my mom has said to me before, if you're not nervous, if you don't have a stirring in your belly, you're not stretching enough. You're not reaching high enough. And I've always remembered that. Hmm. I get I should tell her. So I come home and I've had a bad day and I watch Winter Soldier because I like <laughs> knowing that there's that possibility of having that friendship that transcends everything. Right. Kind of kind of that same idea in a different form right yeah and i think something stable yeah having something stable in a world that's going completely to hell (laughs) you're right you're absolutely right yeah again i mean story can be healing too you know what there's when you think about you know ya a lot of a lot of similar themes pop up and, and not that every book is about the same thing, but, you know, the, they are topics that affect the readership, you know, topics that hit close to home and, and, and are personal to them. And, and bullying is one of those themes that seems to come up a lot in middle grade and YA books. Just curious why you felt that it was important to include that on top of everything else that you've included in this book. Yeah, so I don't think really any kids escape that feeling of not belonging. And and obviously, you know, some experience it in different degrees, right? So so the, this idea that you're being made fun of for something 
And I think what kids face today, I was just having this conversation with one of my daughters last night that, you know, I grew up in a time where there wasn't social media. So we weren't facing those difficulties and those challenges that kids are facing today, um, where the whole world knows that you're being bullied or that your personal business is being put out there. And so I, I and I think that that's why I dedicated the book to those who don't feel like they belong, because I just don't believe that any human has escaped that feeling. Um whether they feel it all the time, whether they only felt it as a kid, whether they've only had a couple of experiences. I, I think that kids can relate to that. And I think that adults can relate to that. Teachers, librarians, anyone who has their hands in this book can relate to that. And there's so much that we see in this world around that, that it just, um, it's always shocking to me what kids are going through, even to the, the tragic, tragic stories that we're hearing on the news about kids who are committing suicide because they've been bullied so hard and it just it's it's hard for me as a mother to accept that as as a citizen um and i just you know i think shedding light on it even though it was such a subtle um aspect to the book i think is really really important yeah it's kind of taking the train in a different totally different direction do you remember the first myth that you ever heard Oh, gosh. So an early myth that I heard my grandmother told me about the um, the Dwarf King. And I remember being really fascinated. There's all kinds of different renditions. And it's a it's a Maya myth about this, um, this witch who lives out in the jungle, and she finds an egg and from out of the egg sprouts this dwarf. And he is prophesied to overthrow this great king and the king um, essentially has this contest where, you know, if you can build this pyramid in a 24 hour period, um, you will be king. And, and this dwarf was telling his mother, how, what are you talking about? I can never overthrow the king. And how am I supposed to, and I can't be king. And so he goes through all of this, you know, whole identity crisis. And then of course, in the end, he achieves what he needs to achieve. And there's different renditions of that. So I remember that was a really early, um, myth that was, um, more oral storytelling in my family, but I was obsessed. Mm. And I mean, with Greek myths. I mean, I poured over Duolaire's um, book of Greek myths to the point where I think the pages were falling out. Um, and I, I love, love, loved all those. I love the apple of discord probably more than anything. Um, I love that story. So there are so many, I mean, so many that I love. I think myths are so important. Um, and I think that a lot of times kids aren't finding them as much as, I mean, that's what's so great about what Rick Riordan is doing. But I think so often in school, even kids aren't finding them the way that that maybe my generation or earlier generations did. Yeah. I mean, I, my, I don't I, I can't really say my generation, but my exposure, uh, the deepest exposure to, to Greek myths came through that Edith Wharton book. The, and, and I remember hating it. Yeah. Well, cause it was so dense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Edith, Edith Wharton's mythology was like, that was the opposite of Rick Riordan, you know? It was like the opposite of making myths fun. And it was just, I remember just hating it so much. And so my kids my kids now have just recently discovered um, you know, Percy Jackson in, in those books and they're just they're just they're just eating them up and they just love everything about them and it it, it makes me happy to see them like it even though I wasn't like that when I was their age. Right. <laughs> that you weren't given the right books no right? i was yeah. given the exact wrong book <laughs> see i started really young because my parents read us all the isaac besheva singer folk tales when i was little and then we started finding the other stuff 
the Greek stuff and the Roman stuff and then the Egyptian stuff. Yeah. And then I was a religion major in college and I have a master's in theology. So I found other stuff that way. That is so cool. (laughs) And then we actually started reading, my husband started reading the Percy Jackson books to our son when he was two and a half and he's nine. So we've read him all of Rick's books and all of the new imprint books since they've come out. But the ones he likes the most are the mythology books that are written in the character voices. So he loves the Greek myth books that Percy Jackson wrote. And Mm. we're reading him the ones that all the characters from Magnus Chase wrote. Right. Um, And those are his favorites because he loves those characters and he's getting to hear them tell the stories. Yeah. So those are his favorite ones so far. That's awesome. (laughs) So, you know, we're talking about all these different myths and different cultures and they've survived for thousands of years. Like why, why do these myths survive and still feel so relevant to so many people? I think because they tell us who we are, right? I think that, you know, myths simply put are just stories passed down about who we are and how we became. So they're like these origin stories. And, and I think that there are these heroic tales and they teach us about good and they teach us about evil and, and there's there's this light and darkness and love and hate and and it's it's like what you were talking about earlier when when certain elements transcend the story i think that that's what happens in mythology yeah so this might seem like an obvious question but what does it feel like to know that you're introducing these the maya stories to so many kids who may not have heard them otherwise Gosh, you know, sometimes it feels overwhelming because I'm just one voice and I do not speak for an entire culture, right? Um, And so it it feels a little bit overwhelming, but at the same time, it feels really wonderful because these are stories that I loved as a child and did not have access to in written form. And so for it to be introduced in a contemporary way to kids who then might say, hey, I was really interested in Apush, the god of death, darkness, and destruction. I'd like to do a little more research on him and learn more about him. And then maybe that sends them off on their own trail of discovery. That's a really wonderful feeling. I mean, I hope that kids will have that kind of curiosity around these Mesoamerican myths and pantheons because they're so fascinating. And what's really incredible to me is so many of them are aligned with Greek mythology, Roman mythology, Egyptian mythology, right? This idea that they all had this underworld and yet these as far as we know, these these civilizations had no communication with each other. So it's just really interesting to me that the human imagination and mind work so similarly regardless of geography and culture. Do you know um do you know what the plans are for the imprint? Like how 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 deep it's gonna go, how many different books it's gonna eventually encompass? Or are they just sort of taking it one author at a time, one book at a time right now? Um, I'm going to guess, you know, just in some of the conversations that, that I've had with my editor, that they um, have pretty specific goals, but that they are going to be really, really clear um, about quality uh, stories. And so I don't think that, that quantity is ever going to trump quality. Mm-hmm. And so whatever they put out is going to be based on that. And I think more than anything, it's about finding these tales, these this folklore, this mythology from around the world because as rick has said i mean he can't tell every story 
And, and to do this in such a powerful way and to use this platform to do this, I think is really remarkable. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, right. I wanted to derail the train at this point. The bio on your website says that you can read, write, and talk backwards. <laughs> Explain this. Oh, sometimes they make me do this in public. Um, okay. <laughs> so yes, it's, it's a wonderful, one, wonderful party trick. Um, so when I was a child, I learned to read at about the age of four. And I was a pretty advanced reader at the age of four. My grandmother taught me how to read. And I remember she would actually have me read the Bible out loud, um, which is not an easy thing to do, especially the Old Testament. And I don't know why, but I can remember when I would read, I read everything backwards, too. So I would read it forward and then I would read it backwards. Like the sentence backwards or each word backwards? Like, well, no, every, like the sentence, I mean, every word, right? So, um, and then when people would talk to me sometimes, not all the time, but I will take one or two sentences and it starts getting processed backwards in my brain. And so I did this so often that I just kind of learned this language. And now I, I mean, it's just stuck with me my entire life and, my kids would bring their friends home um, after school and say, mom, write backwards for everyone. <laughs> so I would do it. And, um, and interestingly, it's, it's a great, great icebreaker when I'm at these school visits in <laughs> these assemblies of kids. They're like, who is this lady um, that I do this? And so I'll say their names backwards or I'll, you know, they'll pick a word or whatever. And so it always, it always, you know, includes lots of laughter after and, um, and the kids want to know how they can do it too. But <laughs> Lots yeah, of that, practice. That's a big claim to fame, I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I can see that being a big hit with school visits. <laughs> has it has it ever uh, has it ever has it ever come into play? Like has it ever been helpful in your with writing? Because I know a lot of writers have weird little things that they do or the things that they swear by and they say this really helped me get through a certain passage or I, I came up to a wall in this story and I did this crazy thing and it helped me figure out what needed to happen. Has that, you know, party trick ever played a part in, in, in your career? Well, I certainly wish that it was that <laughs> useful of a skill. <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe it is. <laughs> no, but that would be really wonderful. Maybe I need to think about that. Yeah, just start writing a book backwards and see where it goes. <laughs> you don't Perfect. knock it until you try it. You never know. You never Absolutely. Know. <laughs> oh, Sherry, did you have something else that you wanted to ask? No. No. <laughs> I, I totally derailed the train about, with that question. Not about that in particular. Um, <laughs> I can read backwards, but I can't talk or write backwards. So I'm super impressed. No, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, those kids are going to remember because I remember, I remember when I was a kid, there was a teacher at my school who was ambidextrous and would go up to the board and would write two different things with both hands at the same time. And our little minds were blown. I'm telling you, I, 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 I mean, I can't even pat my head and rub my belt like that. Oh my gosh. I I mean, your daughter. Yeah. Really? Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't even, I can't even fathom playing a piano because you have to do two different things with each hand. I can't. No, that's just that's that's crazy. All yeah, right. see, both my kids are ambidextrous, but Zora can write different things with both hands. God, that's amazing. That is amazing. She's she's gonna take over the world. She's the next step of humanity. No, I was gonna ask Jen. Do you still have a day job, or are you a full time writer now? 
I'm a full-time writer. Okay. I, was, I don't know, because I, I, I do follow you on social media, and I see all your school visits and stuff on Twitter, and I was like, she must be a full-time writer. <laughs> Trying yeah, to figure out how that works. Blessed. I'm very blessed. The kids always look like they're having so much fun with you. It always oh, looks so lovely. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned the possibility that it could go beyond two books. Can you say, like, n- not what it will do, but how big the story is in your head? Yeah. So, you know, when I wrote um, Storm Runner and I finished the book, I always saw it as a trilogy. Mm-hmm. That's what it felt like to me. And so I'll leave that there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Jen, thank you so much for your time. This has been such a pleasure. This was so much fun. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate it. It's always fun to visit with folks and other creative minds. And I appreciate it. I know that you all are busy, so I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate it. Well, like I said, I did this as a read aloud with my kids. And it's a pretty hefty book. And I think think we were through it in about a week and a half. And they were very excited when I told them there was going to be another one. Oh, that's awesome. Well, the fire... I will tell you this, that it is fast paced, one crazy ride. Yeah. Um, and so there's going to be some twists and turns. When my editor was reading the manuscript before I got the edit letter, she actually said that she gasped it out loud <gasps> on a couple of points. She's like, I did not see that coming. And I was like, oh, <laughs> awesome. That's, that's always a good sign when you make the editor yeah. gasp. <laughs> they, in fact, right. discovered I was reading them, the Stormrunner, around the same time, Jamie, that they um, discovered Avatar The Last Airbender, which is one of their other favorite things now. And they integrated Stormrunner into their playing Last Airbender. Like, Stormrunner is one of the benders in their bending <laughs> world oh, now. Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> that really is, awesome. That is way cool. <laughs> <laughs> This has been The Great Big Beautiful Podcast. You can find us online at thegbbpodcast.com and on Twitter and Facebook at thegbbpodcast. Thanks again for subscribing and listening. We really do appreciate it. And until next week, I am Jamie Green, and you can find me at The Roarbots. Take care. Take care.